doing like, that. If I talk about when you had blue hair, stuff like that. You can, you can talk about me having blue hair. That's fine. That was a long time ago. Well, we're very excited to be here today. Um, I've been looking forward to this a lot. We've got Professor Ray Kramer, from uh, Director Emeritus from Indiana University. And then we have uh, Mr. Mike Fisk, who's uh, retiring this year from Joliet Central um, High School as their fourth director. And uh, almost as important is uh, the return of Steve Piter here, who hasn't been with us for a few episodes. So welcome, gentlemen. Nice to be here. Thank you very thank, much, Thank you, Don, Dad. for... Uh, taking the time to do this. Oh, absolutely. So, um, a little bit of history on you two. Mike was a student of yours, right? Do I have to actually claim that? You don't have to. <laughs> no, Mike was a student and uh, was in Indiana and a great grad student. And the thing that I think was important was that we got so close. I'll wait. Anyway, we got so close together. Uh, he and his wife, Nancy, were very close to Molly and I and, and, our, and our family. Uh, they actually ended up babysitting our kids a few times, and uh, they got to know them. In fact, my son, uh, when we came out this weekend, he said, make sure you tell Mike Fisk hello for me. And, they, and I'm great. sure that there's probably some stories that he has about <laughs> that say these are my kids. But anyway, that's another story. But yeah, it was, it was great fun having them in Bloomington for a couple of years. And I have watched Mike's career over the years in almost every place that he's been. And uh, it's been very intriguing to see his development you know from the various programs that he's had to finally in this fantastically uh, great historical city of Joliet in this high school and with the tradition that's here and uh, to see him enjoying it so much and also the success that he's had in this school absolutely is that is that all true Mike <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah. I, guess. I, mean, um, I, you know, I was very blessed uh, to to work in the band department at Indiana with with Ray and with uh, Mr. Ebbs. Frederick C. Ebbs was uh, was uh, just an incredible, incredible man. And I think the thing that that resonates with me about you know going to Indiana because when you know my connection with Jerry Lewis at the junior college, he was an Indiana grad. My wonderful band director that i had at bradley university harold pottinger who's passed passed away was an indiana doctorate and being a saxophone player i also had a fascination with dr rousseau mm -hmm. as a teacher you know and, but when i got there and uh was fortunate to work in the band department as an as a grad assistant uh what i found were just these remarkable people that didn't wear their egos on their shoulders like so many people in this business do they were just really down-to-earth caring uh wonderful individuals and and welcomed us into into that community you know and made you feel like you were really important to be there just mentioning fred ebbs uh fred was my mentor uh when i finished undergraduate school at the at the western illinois university uh, during my senior year at Western, I went to a concert in Burlington, Iowa, where the Iowa Symphony Band was playing. And while we had a really good band at Western Illinois, we had a really young director who was a graduate of Iowa. And uh, he took me over and some of the seniors to listen to the Iowa band. And I was just blown away by this fantastic sound of this uh, symphonic band of about 90 players. 
And so I thought, okay, I want to be in that band someday. And after the concert, I met Mr. Ebbs, and I told him of my interest in going to the University of Iowa. And he asked me what my interest was, and I said, well, I'm getting a music education degree. I'm interested in teaching, but I said I love to play. I, I was a trombone player. And, and I said, I also am very interested in composition. Well, my director of bands, Forrest Sycott at Western, was a graduate of Iowa, a doctorate in composition. And so he was the one that really got me interested in doing some composing and arranging when I was in undergrad school. So when I sent my materials to the University of Iowa, I got my acceptance letter, and lo and behold, they accepted me as a graduate student in composition <laughs> and uh, with a full fellowship, uh, with a fellowship, which means I didn't have to do any teaching or any, any duties as a normal grad assistant. So I'm off to Iowa, and the first thing I did is I went into the office of director of bands, Fred Ebbs, and from a year before, he remembered my name. Ray Kramer, how you doing? Good to see you again. And I went in, I said, uh, Mr. Ebbs, I said, uh, this is probably going to be my only chance ever to march in a Big Ten marching band. And I know the reputation of this band. And I said, I'd like to be uh, a part of the marching band this fall. And he said, well, <clears throat> I'm sorry. He said, but I'm, I've already filled all my graduate staff positions. I said, no, no. I said, I don't want to be a grad staff dr dragging a pole around on the sideline. <laughs> I want to march. And he looked at me like I, I, like I was crazy. And he said, well, he said, uh, I'm adding four bass trombones to the marching band this year. Would you like to play one of the bass trombones? And I said, you bet. So I marched and played bass trombone in the Iowa marching band. I was first trombone in the symphony band, first trombone in the orchestra. I was the trombone player in the faculty brass quintet. I played in the brass choir, and I was taking trombone lessons from Pop Gower and trying to survive music history and theory and form and analysis. So I almost burned myself out in the first semester of school. A, this was as a composition. And as a composition major. And my composition teacher expected me to come in with five minutes of new music every week for my lesson. I quickly found out that I wasn't ever going to make any money in composition because I had no talent. <laughs> <laughs> and so I dropped composition at the suggestion of Pop Gower. And uh, he said, he just flat out said, you're not going to survive if you with this schedule. So I dropped composition and kept everything else and uh, was able to, to make it through. You know, even music history, I made it through. But uh, it was great. But I uh, really enjoyed my time at Iowa, and I always knew I wanted to teach. But that was my first association with uh, Professor Ebbs. And the sound of the band that he was able to get out of the band, that sound... Has, has resonated in my ears all these years. It, it became the, 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 the placard of, of what I wanted to hear out of a band. And uh, so that's what I attribute to my time with him, and he was a great musician. So very sensitive, uh, well-controlled, and uh, every score was beautifully uh, studied. Uh, so rehearsals were an education every day. And one of the highlights of the symphony band was, uh, you may not, you guys are too young to remember this, but when the Midwest Clinic was being held in the Sherman House Hotel before it moved to the Hilton many years ago, this was back in the 50s and into the 60s, the Midwest Clinic used to meet concurrently with the College Band Directors National Association. 
and it was held at the same time in the Sherman House Hotel. And the year I was playing in the symphony band, uh, the Iowa band was invited to perform. And so we prepared this piece called Dionysiacs by Florence Schmidt. I don't know whether you know that piece or not, but it's one of the very difficult standard works for band written for the Guard Republic Band. And to play the original score, it took about 100 people because it called for unbelievable instrumentation. Well, that performance was the first United States performance at the Midwest Clinic. And as a trombonist, I'm looking out in the audience and sitting on the front row, you name all the icons of our business at that time in the 60s, and you're looking at Ravelli, you're looking at Hinesley, you're looking at uh, uh, the, you know, uh, Ray Dvorak, you're, you're looking at all the, you know, Harry Beejan, I mean, all the greats that was going on at the time. And we're doing this new piece. And at the end of the piece, those guys were the first ones on their feet. So I'll never forget that performance. It really set a tone for expectation and just what uh, performance and uh, digging into music was all about. And so Hopefully I've been able to be able to keep that kind of uh, musical intensity in the pieces that I put in front of the ensembles that, okay, what, how can I get the most out of this piece? What is the composer really intending here? And occasionally, you even help the composer sometime. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you mentioned um, you know, having a sound in your head from you know, early <clears throat> on uh, in, in school. And a lot of mentors or you know, people that were you know, at that performance that were first on their feet. How much as a young teacher did you call on people who you considered to be mentors or just people you looked up to as you were trying to figure out how to be good at band directing? Well, that's a good question. And uh, I always thought it was important when I was teaching in high school to invite guests to come in and to listen to my band. I think there's nothing that is more educational than standing off the podium and letting someone else get on the podium. And all of a sudden you hear things and realize some things that you didn't hear. And I think sometimes when we stand on the podium for a period of time and rehearsing for something over a period of time, we begin to hear things as we want to hear them. Mm -hmm rather than what is actually being played. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, that's always a frightening thing. <laughs> but uh, so when I, my first uh, real high school job outside of Bardolf, Illinois, when I started there after, in, in, when I was still a senior in college, was uh, West Liberty High School. And this was near Iowa City. And I always had Fred Ebbs come out and uh, listen to my West Liberty band. And when I lived in Harlan, Iowa, which is on the other end of the state, he came out and uh, would listen to my band and rehearse the band. And I would have sometimes uh, colleagues, directors from the area, come in and listen to the group. I, I think it's uh, good for the students. I think it's good for the director themselves to have somebody else uh, get in front of their group and, and offer uh, critiques. Uh, I think today the word is mentoring. I think that uh, this has become a... a an important word in our profession today just like Mike here is going to retire soon but I consider that in the area he could be a mentor to a lot of really uh, fine young directors who can go in and listen and, and give those people guidance and direction so I think that mentoring has become a very important thing in our profession and the state of Iowa 
uh, I'm happy to say, is one of the leaders in the country in mentoring. They actually have state uh, funding that supports mentors, and they're paid to go into school systems and spend a couple of days uh, working with and listening to and working with young directors. And uh, I think uh, what has really shown up in that state, not just in music, but in, in general, mentoring in almost any area, is that the percentage of people that dropped out of education within the first year or two, even, was uh, very high in the state of Iowa. It was almost up to the 30% range. They were losing 30% of their new teachers every year. After they started this mentoring program, that percentage dropped down to 5%. So the impact of those mentors, uh, I think, made a huge difference in, in that state. And I think other states are beginning to catch on, if, if they can get the funding. I, that's the biggest problem, if you can get the government or the state support in education to support mentors. I'm going to ask Mike to talk about you, mm -hmm. but I mean, what else was, was significant about your time at Indiana? What are some things that you, know, you can really thank Professor Kramer for? Well, you know, uh, Ray and Molly Kramer are a package, and they always have been. And um, when I think everybody that I know that's ever been a graduate assistant in the, in the Department of Bands at Indiana under Ray uh, – immediately had this this connection and this friendship with the Kramers as a family and uh, Ray and Molly really m were a model to you know most all of us went there as very young teachers or learning to be teachers and and you know newly married young couples so Nancy and I had been married two years when I went to Indiana and and uh, Ray and Molly were a model to all of us about uh, what a family could be and how important the family is in relationship uh, to your job, you know. And uh, uh, Mr. Kramer would uh, would spend that quality time with his kids every day and never sacrifice that for his work, even to the point where we all knew that he would go back to the office after his kids were in bed asleep and sometimes work through the night charting marching band drill uh, so he wasn't there during the time when his kids needed him uh, to be with them at home too you know and uh, just you know they welcomed us into their home they welcomed us into their their family uh, I can remember great times going out to Lake Monroe uh, with the Kramers in, in their boat and me trying to get up on water skis, which I never was. <laughs> oh, that was—you should have had a film of that. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, just uh, you know, really, uh, not only teaching us how to be teachers and musicians, but really, more importantly than that, how to be good people, how to be great people. And and I think that's the thing I took away more than anything else. And I've tried to uh, present that to my students everywhere that I've been. That. Yeah, we want you to be great players. We want this to be a great band, but the most important thing is the kind of people that you become and uh, the sense of community that has existed in, in my groups over the years is something that I, I'm really proud of because I know that the kids take away something that is gonna be meaningful throughout their life, whether they're a music teacher or a musician or just a consumer of music, they're taking away some character traits that that are going to really profit them, especially in 
in today's society. So, Professor Kramer, was that something you meant to do then? I mean, or, or you know, when you were looking at your graduate uh, assistants, when you were looking at any of your students, did you think that, or was that just kind of the way you lived, the way that you were brought up? Yes. <laughs> Short answer. Short answer. Uh, <clears throat> my parents, uh, I grew up on a farm here in Illinois, and uh, I think that uh, we were always good neighbors. Uh, my my dad was always helpful to other people that lived in the area, and uh, my mom was a teacher aide at a little rural school. It was just down the road a little bit. And I, one thing I learned from my dad was that he said, uh, and I think I've stated this before, but I, I think that my dad always said that, uh, you know, if you want to be, if you want to have a good neighbor, you want to be a good neighbor first. In other words, it doesn't happen, you know, unless you extend yourself first. So I think that was an important thing that I learned uh, when I was growing up uh, with my with my parents. Uh, so it became for for Molly and myself this became an important function that when these young married students or sometimes not married become as graduate students, it was something that we felt we needed to. Uh, uh, almost a, a responsibility, an, ex, an extension uh, that there's more to life than just waving a stick or you know listening to music or preparing music. That we, we are part of life. I mean, you are a life, and there is uh, various aspects of living that you need to be able to do and to function in uh, outside of the realm of just being a musician on the podium. Uh, from the time that we even started teaching in, in public school, when my wife and I would move into a, a new community, we would purposely try to develop relationships with people outside of education. We, we wanted to become involved with the people in the community, regardless of what their profession was. And some of our dearest friends that we still have today, we still maintain contact with them, were people that we've met that were electricians, uh, plumbers, uh, farmers, uh, you know, in, in the various communities that, that, we, uh, that we lived. And we thought that that relationship was just as important for us and in our in our association with the community as what I was doing as an educator you know in the school system so yes that's that's always been a part of uh, our our fabric that we we try to maintain a follow-up to that so as you talk about the other parts of life that are important outside of life on the podium uh, I'm just curious bringing it back to the podium how how do you think that that balance uh, and those those parts of parts of life outside of music shaped your life as a musician uh, and choices you made as a teacher um, or even just you know your your approach as an artist? Uh, back that up even further to the fact that um, <clears throat> I was very fortunate because I started on trombone at this rural grade school two-room school grades one through three in one room and four five six in the other room and somewhere along my sixth grade year somebody came out to the school and demonstrated some instruments and so you know, trombone just kind of stuck i mean nobody else chose trombone i thought man i can be first chair right off the bat so i, I tell you, I'll, <laughs> I'll be trombone right off the bat but i found out then that you know 
I mean, I had lots of friends. All my friends were lived on farms, and and we would just we would run all over the county. We would just have fun every day, and and I found out that uh, you know I was there was an expectation to practice, and I hate to admit it, but uh, I quit. And um, so between my sixth grade year and then going into junior high school, my seventh grade year, which meant taking a bus, you know, eight miles into town. Um, I was just happy kid running around on the farm, helping my dad, just playing, going fishing, going swimming every day, you know, and all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. And I looked out and there was some tall guy standing out in the, the front sidewalk that I had never, I had not seen that person before in my life. And he opened the door, or I opened the door, and I see he introduced himself as Mr. Don Zimmerman, uh, the new band director in our district. And his next words out of his mouth was, how come you didn't sign up for junior high band? <laughs> And, and right away, I felt guilty. Uh, so, how, how does that make you feel? Yeah, Ray yeah. Kramer, quit band. <laughs> yeah, how about that? I hate, like I say, there, there's hope for everybody. There's hope for everybody. But, uh, you know, I look back on that, and uh, he asked me, he said, do you still have your horn? And my dad popped up and said, yeah, it's in the closet. And so anyway, so he got his horn out of his car, his trombone, and he proceeded to give me an hour lesson on our front porch. And in that hour, uh, I had more fun. I learned more. Uh, he was he was dynamic. He was exciting. He was friendly. And so, man, I signed up for junior high band right now. And and my life was had never it was forever changed after that. And it's because he had enough. I have no idea how I found my name. First of all, I have no idea. But anyway, he he must have saw my name on a list someplace and was comparing it to the junior high sign up. And he made the effort to drive and find our, far, our farm eight miles out in the country to get me to sign up for band. And at the end of the lesson, he told my mother, he said, uh, if you will bring your son for an extra lesson every week, if you'll drive him into town, I'll give him lessons for free. And so, man, I loved it. He was an amazing, we had a fantastic high school band, uh, literally a really fine band. Uh, playing the great literature that was available at that time. We're talking about in the 1950s. And, uh, you know, Divertimento for Band, written in 1950. My high school band was playing Divertimento for Band. We played the Fauché Symphony in B-flat for state contest. You know, and no band I'd ever heard of had been doing the Fauché Symphony. Uh, he had me on Arthur Pryor solos right away. So he changed my life. He really changed my life. But what, and what I've tried to stress to young teachers today is this, that you, know, you build your program one student at a time. And I know that Mike does this, that every student in that band today that we rehearsed, that he knows every one of those students, not only their name, but he knows about the students and about the students, and that every one of those students is interested and important to the program. And so I try to share that with young people, that every student uh, down to the individual. You build your program one student at a time. And uh, that's what Don Zimmerman did. And this is Knoxville High School. This is a, a small little school, you know, down in uh, Knox County. And I think there's 225 students in the high school. So Don Zimmerman did the high school band, the junior high school band, the senior mixed chorus, and the women's chorus. And then he decided that that school needed an orchestra. And so he started a string program my seventh grade year. 
And he brought all of his friends down from the University of Illinois, the string program, to help him once a month. They came down to give individual lessons to the kids and, and sectionals. And my sophomore year, that was 1956, my sophomore year, we took a 70-piece full orchestra to play at the MENC National Convention in St. Louis in four years. That's the kind of teacher he was. So he was, he was dynamite. I mean, talk about a mentor. Talk about somebody that inspired and motivated. That, that was it. He went on to be the orchestra director at Rockford, in Rockford, Illinois, for years, and, and just did orchestra for the rest of his career. I never had a chance to thank him, you know, personally, to really say thank you for what you did for me. And so I tried to contact Don Zerman. I had a friend I went in Indiana at the time. I said, I tried to contact a friend and say, find out about Don Zimmerman and uh, send me a phone number, email, whatever. I said, I, I, I need to get a hold of Don Zimmerman. And so a few months later, I got the response back from this uh, friend in, that lived in Rockford. He said, uh, Ray, says, I, I'm sorry to tell you this, but uh, Don Zimmerman passed away. And I thought, oh, man, that's a bummer. And so, believe it or not, three years ago, I'm in Colorado Springs living, and pops up an email from Don Zimmerman. And I thought, that's some kind of internet connection. <laughs> I tell you what, that, that's amazing. <laughs> and uh, my friend uh, told me there were two Don Zimmermans that were living in, and it was the other Don Zimmerman that had passed away, not my band, old band director. And he had a son living in Denver. So we got together when he came to visit his son and had lunch. So I was able to tell him thanks for what he did for me. But I just, I just remember just the, the inspiration that he was and the motivation that he was and just the insistence on doing your best. That, that was the key. He didn't expect you to be the best player in the world, but he expected you to do his best. And that's what I've always tried to share with my students, that you, you have your students, if you can get them to do your best, then you'll, you'll be satisfied in your teaching. Well, I, love, I love hearing stories like that, and I think about, again, the, the grad assistants of, of yours that I've talked to, and they have this huge sense of pride because they were a part of what they know is this great club to be in, but it's not egotistical at all. You know, it's, it's more so they were, the ones I've talked to, such as, as, as Mike or, or Dr. Lambrecht, they're just super thankful to, to have had your teaching. And, uh, I mean, I know I've heard that from their mouths. And th it, it just sounds like you've significantly um, impacted these people in a, in a very, very positive way. But, you see, I turn that around. I, I look at it the other way in the fact that uh, those kind of students, that I was blessed by having those kind of students come through my program and that uh, without that kind of person without that kind of musician then my work would be insignificant you know so it's always a combination you know it's never about me or about you it's about us mm -hmm. and without that sort of uh feeling of, of of complete confidence in each other and camaraderie and building up of a of a rapport and a and esprit de corps, then the success level will never be as high as what it can be without that kind of yeah. uh, without kind of sense of being together. Well, it's easy to be on your own island, right? You know, you're the only band director in the school. You're in <laughs> sometimes your own room, or you're sharing it with somebody else, and uh, you know that can be very tough for some people. 
you know, um, I I think the thing that I that I take away from just listening to this too is remembering how much we always felt that uh, Ray believed in us, not only when we were there as students, but after even more so than that when we got out and were teaching. And you might be having a, a difficult time with an administrator or uh, with a colleague or or just you know day to day doing your your thing you know and he always understood and and uh, never ever indicated any kind of a doubt you know that we were able to be successful and that's something that i've always tried to uh, communicate to my kids you know over the years is that uh you know you can you can do anything that you believe you can do you can do anything that you can't you think you can't do you can't you know you're probably right about that you've heard that before but uh, you know, Ray talked a, a few minutes ago about how important everyone is to, you know, to the to the ensemble and to each other, and and I I've said that to my kids probably on a daily basis. One of the things, you know, if they, you know, you were to poll them about fiskisms, uh, <laughs> fiskisms. I tell them, I love you, you are the most important person here, and everyone else in the band is more important than you are. And if that's your attitude, then we're all going to be successful because, you know, iron sharpens iron. And and it's that, like I said before, that sense of community. Um, there's just a, there's a mindset, you know, that you try to create about doing your best and the importance of attitude and all that positive, uh, you know, attitude stuff that's out there today. But uh, uh, it's really communicating their how much they're worth to kids and how much their best is worth you know to the to the whole and um that's something that we definitely took away sure. from our time there i was just going to yeah, i'm sorry i was just going to say you mentioned something a little bit ago about names and about the importance of knowing students names i mean this i learned this from fred ebbs he was so good at this and so <clears throat> i think that um the more that you can communicate with your students on a personal level, and when I when I say personal level, I don't mean that you're you're going to try to put anybody on the spot by calling, but 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 just communicating with them in the hallway or before rehearsal or or any time that you might see them outside of the rehearsal, but or even in rehearsal, you can say, uh, Susan, would you please try to play a little bit louder on that on that note right there, or whatever the case may be. So I've always made it a priority to get to know students' names as quickly as possible. And even when I was doing the marching band at Indiana, um, and I, the, the students to this day, to this day, do, they don't understand how I did this, but I, I know how I did it. <laughs> but uh, we would meet in squads when, when we start band camp at the beginning, and I would go around and visit every squad. And, and I did that not only to watch and see what was going on, but I also was putting a face with a name because I already knew every name in the marching band before they showed up. And so all I did in that first rehearsal, that very first day, was just go around and putting a face with a name. And then the next day, we would have an inside rehearsal, and I would go around the entire marching band and call every kid by name. And they just blew them away. And like... 
oh, we're not going to be able to get away with anything, you know. <laughs> I can't hide. And so I, I've done that really. And, and the thing that's really interesting is in Japan, I do that in Japan. And sometimes I do this even in the very first rehearsal. I go through and call all the students by name. And that doesn't happen in Japan. They're rarely called by name like in the, in the rehearsal. Uh, it's just That's not part of their system. That's not part of their DNA. But uh, – but I do that, and so right away you're you're establishing a different kind of relationship with the students when you can call them by name and take the interest. That's another thing that <clears throat> impacted us as graduate students too, because I'll never forget going to work at, at the band camp with the marching hundred that was actually three hundred and fifty, <laughs> and and watching this man call every student by name. You know, and I'm calling them by their drill ID letter and number. You know, <laughs> I mess uh, up my G four. <laughs> this makes me feel. But awful. Uh, I mean, yeah, <laughs> and, and, and my, so that my was, mom that, did that. <laughs> that was another takeaway, though, that you know, you yeah. need to know your students' names, and these are things that we all took away from our time with Ray. Mm. And it sounds common sense, right? It does, but it's it's not. I know for some people, it's it's, and I'm not just saying like yes, we know their names, but just knowing kids and the people you're working with I mean I, I know when I came here into this program knowing that my band director knew things mm-hmm. about me positive things about me no you good know, good yeah it, you know, it made a difference it, it made, made a difference it makes a difference that's right absolutely well let me ask this um, and this is maybe some more kind of nuts and bolts or, or, or philosophy questions um, and, and one will be a negative type question one will be positive you know uh, you guys have worked with a, a lot of bands and, and a lot of people, what do you think is, is going on today in music education that, that could be adjusted or, or improved? What are, what are some things, I guess, that you're seeing today that you wish would maybe either go in a different direction or maybe there could be some additions to some type of programs? Well, that's, that's a good question. And I think that's a question that every director would like to have a direct answer. Sure. It's, I think a direct answer is difficult uh, because every situation is a little bit different. Um, but as I go around and listen to various groups of every level, you know, from you know university bands down to grade school bands, and I still work with that kind of level. I did a grade school uh, uh, honor band thing here not long ago, and I thought, well, okay, I can still talk to fifth and sixth graders. It's all right, you know. But here's the thing that I think is, is important. Um, no matter what community you go into, what, what the situation is, uh, the first thing is accept the students where they are. You can't do anything about where the students have been or what they've done in the past. Uh, you, you accept the students and, and, and take the charge that you're now the new guide in that program and that you're going to do your best to guide the students into whatever expectation that you might have for that particular program. And that, that guidance is something that, that may take some time to develop. I think many times young teachers will go into a new program 
and they'll think that okay i'm going to do this boom this i'm going to change all this boom 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 i'm going to do this my standard phrase to music ed students at iu and also to grad students is when you take a new job or sometimes even your first job just remember you can't change the course of the ohio river in one year you know it takes time and uh, if you go in and try to change things that maybe has been a great tradition or has been an accepted practice, um, you can get yourself in serious trouble. I, I've watched students go out and, and make mistakes on that line. So I think that the, the, the important thing is to go in and take the students where they are. Don't blame them or shame them but where are we and now let's see if we can go somewhere else different and uh, and i wouldn't say the word better let's see if we can go and do something different and uh, that can for you and all of us who are in the profession that means let's see if we can make this better <laughs> and uh, but uh, i don't but the students don't want to hear that because no matter what went on before there are going to be loyalties and traditions that are very strong, and if you try to uh, downplay or to or, or, or cast any kind of shadow on what went on in the past, it can get you in, in serious trouble. Taking that further about uh, education today, I think that we're facing, as you all know, you know better than me, but uh, there are so many requirements that are put on students today and expectations and state requirements and testing, uh, financial crisis, uh, budget crunches. Uh, I think it makes it very difficult uh, sometimes to survive or to think we can survive in some of those circumstances. What, what I've seen over the years, and I love this, and I, it's just, this is inherently true, is that band directors will make it happen regardless of the situation if they want it to happen they'll make it happen and maybe that'll take uh, some outside parental help you know some kind of a club organization maybe it'll take a little extra time on the director's part to add a little more time here or there to get something done but inherently committed directors will make it happen even with difficult circumstances and that's why I think that the programs have survived so well over the years. People ask me, do you think the bands are better today than they were, let's say, 40 years ago? Oh, I think there are some great bands today. I think there were some great bands 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago. But I think that we still have strong programs that are because of strong teaching and strong motivation and inspiration. And I think that will always be there. I really do. But I think that sometimes we just have to find new ways to go about it. I think we're in a field, we're in an area now, uh, I should say a time frame now where technology has helped us a lot. When I watch young directors, how they uh, establish a communication line through technology with their kids, or even in rehearsal, it's amazing to me what, what's possible now to, to do with uh, what's available to, to, for a rehearsal. But... Um, Getting down to some specifics, um, I'm going to go back and say this, that I, I want directors to be more careful about the kind of sounds they expect out of their ensemble. Um, 
I think we've gotten into a time, and I'm, I'm just going to say this, that uh, volume and, uh, and percussion uh, <laughs> forces beyond the control of nature <laughs> uh, <laughs> can, can get in the way of, of, uh, of the musicality of, of the ensemble. Uh, I'm going to just say what Joe Alessi I've heard him say in, in clinics the more than one occasion, he said the most difficult thing to do is to be musically sensitive if you're playing too loud. And, uh, and he backs that up. I mean, he can play loud, but it's always in control. It's always with great sound. And I think that some of our ensembles today play really loud with a bad tone quality and not control and not sensitive. And I think that part of that is that I think sometimes literature, some of the current literature, sort of dictates that that's what should happen. And I think that we have to be careful about the choice of literature, uh, about how we interpret the literature, and the diet of literature that we put in front of our students. That's, that's a tremendous, tremendous responsibility for the, for the director is the choice of material that you're going to put in front of your students. I remember a clinic that John Painter did years ago at the Midwest Clinic. And, and one, of the, one of the statements that just stuck out in my mind so powerfully, it says, do not put music in front of your ensemble that you, as a musician, cannot respect. And I think that was so powerful to me. And he didn't say that you always have to play the, you know, the Giannini Symphony or the Hinema Symphony. That's not what he was talking about. He was talking about any level of music from any grade level. Uh, there's, there's, there's good and there's, there's bad, right? But he said that if you choose what you choose to put in front, you as a musician had better respect that music to begin with. Because if you don't respect it, I guarantee you your students will not buy it. And I, I think that was uh, very powerful. So I would just say this, that I, would, I want the directors to continue to put tonality and the kinds of sounds that their ensembles make as the number one priority. And to always maintain a sense of, uh, if you listen to any of the great ensembles over the years, and I'm talking about professional ensembles as well as university ensembles uh, high school ensembles, the number one component of any of those groups is the kind of sound that they made. To me, I mean, I taught at Parma Senior High School for one year before I went to uh, Indiana. Uh, Parma Senior High School is a very unique school. Uh, there were 180 students in the high school band program. Uh, there was two bands of 90 pieces each. And out of those 180 students, um, I would say that 140 of those students studied with professional musicians in Cleveland. Either Cleveland Symphony, Baldwin-Wallace Conservatory, Oberlin, Case Western Reserve. I mean, they were phenomenal musicians. But the interesting thing about that job was that George Zell was conducting the Cleveland Orchestra at the time, and the orchestra came to my school and did concerts several times a year. And I got to stand backstage and listen to George Zell rehearse what I thought was one of the great orchestras ever. 
and to listen to him talk about sound and the kind of sound that was being produced all the way through. And I thought, wow, okay, so you listen to Zell, you, you listen to any of the great orchestras, you listen to any of the great concert bands, you listen to the Rivelli concert bands from Michigan, the Fred Ebbs concert bands, you, you listen to the, the, the high school bands from Joliet over the years and the kind of sounds that that band made. You did not hear obtrusive sounds. You heard beautiful sounds. And I think that, uh, I think that every director needs to continue to focus on getting the best sound possible out of their ensemble. And you do that by choosing the best literature you can put in front of your kids for that level of group you have and music that you believe in totally. Yep. Mm -hmm. So a, a new teacher comes out of college and the pieces that are most recently in their head are what they played in college. And if they had a great uh, high school band program or middle school pro program, that's what they're familiar with. How does somebody new, first five years, ten years, select great literature? What, what makes a great piece of music? I'm going to go back to uh, the most simple statement about what makes good music by Francis Macbeth. Does it say anything and go anywhere? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and and when, you, when you get down to the basics, isn't that, isn't that it? I mean, yeah. any of the great literature that we know, it says something. Not only does it say something, it does something to us. And there is, it goes somewhere. In other words, the form of the piece is, uh, is such that it keeps you engaged uh, throughout the piece, rather than becoming a formula. In today's yeah. market, it's hard, it's hard to find. You know, you really have to be willing to search and I think one of the things that uh, is really important is to find some writers who are out there that are working who you really do find those qualities in their work consistently, you know, because there's so much music, uh, you know, in the educational market that's just, uh, like Ray said, is a formula. And uh, they all sound alike. I was at a concert recently where I heard three different bands play three pieces and it sounded like they, and they were all different pieces but it sounded like I just listened to the same thing three times can I can I ask so um, in terms of another nuts and bolts question for either of you score study and preparing a score for rehearsal um, what are, what are some of the things that you look for and I, I know that some of these answers are going to seem obvious but what what is your process what does your score look like even I mean are there markings how many what are the kinds of markings that we see in your score uh, what's that process like for you you mean if you look at my score and look, see what what I put you're in you're rehearsing my score. an ensemble what what kinds of things do you actually put on paper for yourself <clears throat> well you know I, I know you were at rehearsal this morning and uh, I mean, I added some dynamics. I added some different articulations. I asked for some different things that are not in the score. And yet those little things, I think, make a difference, you know, that, that it adds something that, that could that maybe not quite there. Um, so for me, I, when I look at a score, first of all, a brand new score, how do you go about, what do you do first? You can't analyze a score 
on the first time through. I mean, you can't just look at a score and say, oh, this is an ABA or it's a Rondo whatever and you do this and this. But here's how I always taught students to look at a score. And uh, I take a score and I and I open it up to the first page and the thir- I, I, if there's a program note, I'll look at the program note. I'll just, just read it very quickly. And then I just start and I look at, and I just start conducting. And I'm turning pages and I don't conduct every measure but I conduct sections. And as I'm conducting and turning pages, I see what the transparency of the score is, where the solos are, where the tempo changes are, or oh, a change key here. And, I'll condu- and maybe it'll take me less than five minutes to go through an entire score, just turning pages and conducting. But in that very quick perusal, I can get an idea about that piece. Now that all stems from what I used to have to do and help my students do in preparation for sight reading at contest. A lot of places don't require sight reading anymore. But I was, I was taught as a musician that sight reading was a very important ingredient to the development of my musicianship. And so even in undergrad school, I, I had a trumpet player friend that he and I would get together at least two or three times a week and there was a book called Amston's Duets and it was written for both trumpet and trombone I think you get it for a lot of instruments but we would just it was yay thick it had maybe 50 exercises in it and we would just open a page and start reading and we did that all the way through undergrad school we were both the same the same level and when I was in, teaching in high school, I would have my, my high school kids, we would sight read music at least once, if not twice, every week. I would put a new piece of music in front of them. Because we did summer band concerts where we would put on eight summer band concerts. Every concert was a different program, and we had one two-hour rehearsal to prepare for that program. And uh, by the time and I made the freshmen, I required them to be a part of the summer band so by the time we got to the beginning of the school those kids could read almost anything because that's what they learned to do so anyway i I believe in sight reading and for me that's that's how i go through the score first I, i basically sight read the score then i go back if it's something that really interests me then i go back and then i spend time my favorite thing my favorite thing in the world is taking a score that I've never heard the recording of it, I've never heard it performed before, and I love to, to see what I can discover in that new score. And I guess that comes from my, my uh, thwarted con- composition background. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, uh, that I've always had an interest in, in new pieces, and, and I just love taking a new score and then seeing what can be done with that music. Um, so that's I, I think that that's important but I, I also go through and I look for details maybe there's one note that is totally obscured but important just like that one place where the trombone one has B natural going to A sharp you never hear that but all of a sudden that B natural to the A sharp becomes really important when that note comes out of that particular chord. And I think there's lots of those kind of places in every score. And I think we have to find them and we have to digest them. Um, 
We had Fred Finnell on our campus several times. Sorry, I keep hitting this uh, microphone stand. I'm sorry, who is that? Uh, uh, Fred Finnell. Uh, you know, he was, a, he, was a sh- he was a short guy <laughs> with you know, kind of graying hair. <laughs> and uh, he had to have an extra height on the podium each time because otherwise the musicians couldn't see him. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> we had him on campus a few times, and uh, we would choose literature that he was going to do. Well, he would send me his personal scores because he wanted me to rehearse the music exactly as he had it marked in his score. But here's the thing that I learned about Fred Vanell. No matter how many times that he did a piece, that he would take his score and every time he wrote, he dated whenever he conducted that piece the last time. He dated his own personal score. And if you look through the score in the margins, almost in every page, he would write himself personal notes the next time I do this piece, I want to try this dynamic level. And it went on through. And so, you know, he, every, so every time, no matter how many times you do the whole first suite, you want to make sure that when you do it the next time, it's going to sound like the first time that you've done it. Mm. It has to be fresh every time. Maybe one of the best compliments recently that I've ever gotten was uh, when I was uh, one summer at Masashino, and uh, I decided to do the whole second suite because we they hadn't been done for a long time in the school. So I put the whole second suite uh, on the program, and the tuba teacher at the time there was the former tubist in the L.A. Phil, Roger Bobo. And so he was in the audience, and after the concert, he came back, and uh, and he commented on the whole second suite. And he says, you know, he said it was like I was hearing that piece for the first time. Mm. And I thought, thank you very much. <laughs> I mean, really, that, that was a tremendous compliment because you want it to sound fresh. But uh, to me, music is, is the most important thing. I just, you know, I really I can't stress the importance of putting the right kind of literature in front of your students. They will respect you in a different way for the kind of music you put, perform that you put in front of them. So, literature and sound. I, I went to a university concert. I won't name the university, and I won't even tell you what year it was or how many years ago. It doesn't matter. But this is a very fine, highly respected school of music. And uh, I happened to hear the performance in a relatively small auditorium. It wasn't very big. And, um, and the group started playing, and... I'm going to use the word, my ears were offended. Not because it was bad, because it was so loud. It was like the brass players were like trying to take what little gray hair I have left on my head (laughs) off. And it actually hurt my ears. And so at intermission, I actually moved to the last row of the auditorium to get myself further away from this, this intense presence of the ensemble. Now... The ensemble is a great ensemble. I felt sorry for the woodwinds because if the brass was playing, you did not hear any woodwinds. I don't care what the what was in the instrumentation. So I thought if they would just use a little more common sense about uh, balance, about the kind of tone that they're projecting, then the 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 musical performance would have taken on a different a different level. Of, of acceptance to the audience 
And unfortunately, I, I, I hear that a lot. And the same thing is in Japan. Volume is such an important thing over there for their high school bands and university bands. Uh, I do some conducting lessons with some young directors in, this, in the country. And uh, the one director really loves the sound that I get out of the group that I conduct over there. He really is locked into it. And so he's trying to develop his group to get that kind of sound. And they went to contests last spring and so I asked him, I said, well, how did it go? And he said, well, the band played really well, but we didn't get a, quote, a gold, you know, because you get a gold, silver, or bronze. That's, that's your three levels you get. And he said the judge's comment was, we didn't play loud enough. And I thought, oops. <laughs> didn't say anything about musicality or the beautiful tone quality. And yet, yet last summer, we, we toured a part of the country that we'd never been in before, and uh, I had met some of the directors earlier from previous experiences at some conventions, and uh, one of the directors sent me this wonderful letter uh, after our concert, and he said, uh, uh, I was in tears by the sound of your ensemble. He said, it's the most beautiful-sounding wind ensemble I've ever heard. Well, for me, that was, that's the ultimate compliment in that country because um, we get a different sound than most of the other groups. I don't know whether I answered your question, Steve, no, or not. but does, uh, yeah. Well, I'm just speaking to the sound. Some of my favorite recordings of, you know, uh, Dance of the Jesters, Beyond My Vision, are from your retirement concert album. I mean, pieces that I already love, but when mm -hmm. I listen to those recordings, I go, man, that's that's totally different than any performance I've ever heard. And that's a live performance, by the way. It's beautiful. Yeah. I'm, I'm, on beautiful that, I'm on that recording, by the way. I'm, I'm applauding <laughs> in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. you coughing. And you can hear him. Yeah, you can hear him. You can hear him. Well, we, you know, we don't want to take up uh, too much more time here, but, um, you know, would you mind just going in quickly about um, what, what other differences and, and things that you see with Japan and here in terms of your work? I've had a lot of people ask me, uh, okay, how do you compare the group you conduct in Japan, the Musashino group, with the Indiana University Wind Ensemble? Well, what are the differences? And I'll say, okay, well, here's, here's the first difference. Um, I had a lot of graduate students in my group at Indiana. So there is a maturity level, uh, just the kinds of sounds that you get, just because of the age, uh, there's a maturity level that is, you know, pretty amazing, you know, really, really good. Uh, the group that I conduct in Japan, while they're university students, they're all undergraduates. There are no graduate students in the, in the program. And so right away, there is a maturity difference in between. Uh, the second thing is that I have to try to develop the sound difference. I try to get the Masashino group to produce the kind of sound that my Indiana group produced, which is hard because of two things. Number one, from the time they start instruments over there, almost the entire country, everybody plays with a brighter sound than what they do in America. Mm. Even the high school kids here play with a darker sound. It's just a concept. Over there, their concept is a much brighter sound. Even if you listen to the, the really fine symphonies that, that play in that country, the, the brass, even the woodwinds all play with a brighter sound. But the second reason for that is that they tune at 442, not 440. Now, it doesn't sound like much, but it does make it brighter. So those are, those are two things right off the bat, is I, I try to infuse uh, a different sound concept with, with the Japanese students. The other thing that, it, that is... I think uniquely different is the fact that uh, my Indiana group 
those students come through the kind of training they've had in the background that going back to sight reading, I could put almost anything in front of that group. And even the first time through, they do a pretty amazing job of, of reading the first time through. The Japanese students do not read well because that's not how they're trained. They're not trained that way. They're trained to have this concerto or this etude, and you work on that etude until you have it memorized. Or, and, and so it's just over and over and over and over. So they don't go through a lot of new music. And, they, and so they, the, the whole sight reading process is very different over there. Uh, the case in point, uh, one time I just threw out to the ensemble, Molly on the Shore. Okay, let's read it. Boom, boom, here we go. You know, uh, clarinets were fumbling all over the place, you know? And, 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 the, and right away, you look at the students' faces, and first of all, they feel humbled. They, they have lost face. That's the whole thing about Japanese culture. They lost face because they couldn't just play it right off. So the next two days, we, that was on a Tuesday, so the next rehearsal is on a Friday. So on Wednesday, Thursday, I'm walking through the school, and there's always practice rooms on the lower floor, and, and they're usually invaded by the flute players and the clarinet players. And so I'm walking down the hall, and what am I hearing? And out of every practice room, I'm hearing Molly on the shore from all the clarinet players and the flute players. So on Friday, we pull the piece up, no problem, because they did not want to come to rehearsal again unprepared. So that's the one thing that I think is so different that I never, never have to worry about whether a student can play their part or not. I know they're going to play their part because that's part of their culture. They have to play it. And they will practice it until they can play it perfectly. So my job, can we do it as musically as possible with the best sound that we can do? The other thing is the students over there have a tremendous work ethic. Um, they are willing to meet uh, extra time, effort, whatever it takes to make the product the best that they can do. And I, I really appreciate that. The other thing is that rehearsals, I mean, I always try to get my Indian, Indiana kids to do this, but it never quite caught on. They stand and bow to me at the beginning of rehearsal. <laughs> <laughs> and they say, please teach me, you know. And at the end of the rehearsal, they stand up and they say, thank you for the rehearsal. And, uh, you know, and that... That was that. That's very different, <laughs> but um, th those are some major differences. Now, as far as high school and junior high school bands are concerned in that country, I've, I've been able to get to know some of the high school directors and junior high directors, and uh, I really enjoy going to some of the rehearsals and watching them work. But it's very different. Everything there is a club activity. They don't have band during day. It all meets after school. And so the really great bands that you hear at Midwest Clinic or that you hear all about and you see on YouTube, those bands will rehearse every day, four hours after band. I mean, after school. So they'll go from 4 o'clock in the afternoon till 8 o'clock at night. Every day. Including Saturday and Sunday. And, uh, and so that's... That's, that's their intense. That, that's their intensity for wanting to do the very best that they possibly can. And I, I keep trying to tell them, and oh, I'll go to, they'll invite me to come to a rehearsal to rehearse their band. And uh, they'll say, okay, rehearsal begins at two o'clock. And so I'll show up at two o'clock for a rehearsal. And the first hour is what they call training period. All they do is work on fundamentals for one solid hour. Tone quality, projection of tone, breathing, 
intonation, articulation, balance, blend for one solid hour. Then they take a short break and then they come back and then they start rehearsing their piece. And that's and every day. That's every day. Every day. And both junior high and, and the other thing that they do so fantastically is that every one of those top bands, they sing like you would not believe. They sing better than any high school choir you'd ever want to hear. And that's part of their training. Not only just singing their band parts, but actually singing chorales and things that they the director puts in front of them to work on intonation and balance and, and projection of tone. And so that that's always that's always stunning to me to listen to those kids mm -hmm. sing. They just sing their hearts out. Mm. Well, listen, we want to thank you very much for, for sitting with us. Uh, what's what's up next for Professor Kramer? What, uh, what's on the docket? Well, <clears throat> I think the next thing on my docket is the Joliet High School Band on Sunday afternoon okay. at, at the retirement of Mr. Fisk. And I'm looking forward to that as well, very much so. Uh, I will go back to Japan again in, uh, in the fall for three months. We'll come home for a couple of months, then we'll go back three more months next summer. Um, I, I want to state a couple of things as we're finishing up here that I, that I think are important. Um, I think that the desire of directors and teachers, whatever inner desire they have for wanting to help their students attain a level of accomplishment is uh, has to come from deep within each individual. I think that uh, without that sort of inner desire of wanting to help the students attain a level that they didn't think they would be able to attain is one of the most rewarding things that can happen to a director. And I don't care what the, what the level is, whether it's elementary, junior high, high school, university, that um, there has to be that sort of inner desire. When you think of all the great directors that uh, many level that, that you know about, even that uh, you, you can put your finger on the personality of that director and you can put your finger on their inner desire of wanting to help their students achieve. Um, one of the phrases I use all the time with uh, with students and and teachers is that don't let don't let good get in the way of great uh, because I think sometimes we get students to a certain level and we stop and because we think they've gone as far as they can go. Mm. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, gentlemen, you can't anticipate where those students can go. It's our job to try to take them as far as they think they can go and then on beyond. And so I always tell them that um, the, with great accomplishment is even greater satisfaction. And I think that's the thing I've enjoyed all these years that I've been teaching. I mean, when you think back when I, my first teaching experience started in 1961, and uh, when I look back and think about all those years now 50 some years 55 years or 54 years uh, I still love what I'm doing I still love it I still love the challenge of taking a piece of music that's raw and seeing what can happen in a short amount of time you know with the musician sitting in front of you and I think if, if you love that kind of challenge as a director then you will never get tired of what you do 
you'll look forward to it every day. I, I can honestly say I look forward to going to work every single day. And I, I can guarantee you there's a lot of people in the world that can't say that about their job. And I do it because there's something about the process of creating something new, creating a, a something that the students have to do themselves. They're not turning on electronic anything. They're not putting on the most sophisticated earphones in the world. They're, they're making it happen from their heart and from their fingers and from their lips. And uh, to me, that's the greatest satisfaction you can have. And those students will be forever changed because no matter what they do in life, that challenge and how they approach that challenge will help them become a better person. And I know that sounds cliche, but they'll be better workers, they'll be better citizens, they'll be better people, they'll be better husbands and wives than they would be without this experience. And I believe that wholeheartedly. I have witnessed it and seen it happen for a long, long time. So anyway, for all of you listening out there, keep doing what you're doing. Enjoy every single day and enjoy your students because be they the make you. <laughs> I know. Way better at this than us. Well, thank you so much. It's thank you. Really, thank it's, you. It's humbling yeah. to even sit in a room with both of you. You know, as Mike, you retire this year and you've had such a great career here and, and just walking through the halls of Joliet Central is ridiculous I mean the amount of history that's just here is well, is incredible I thank you I think probably that's one of the the ultimate compliments that anyone could get is to be put into a category with my mentor here Mr. Kramer uh, you know, it's a, uh, thanks for that. Yeah, well, and, yeah. and, it, and it, I mean it. It's humbling to just hear hear both of you talk about all the things that you've done and have had such a big impact positively on not just your own students but the field of music education. And to hear you talk about it from such a down to earth place is really humbling for me. And so, thank you for sharing all that. No problem. I, I've and, enjoyed sitting here and listening today. <laughs> really. And what we didn't get to much today was about uh, my my life as far as a family and as a father and a husband but this has been an incredibly important uh, aspect of our lives and uh, uh, my wife and I are, are Christians and we believe that uh, we're being led and uh, we think that uh, yes we only had three dates before we decided to get <laughs> married but uh, we'll be celebrating our 53rd anniversary in uh, December and she's the ultimate band mom. Uh, just uh, love her dearly, and uh, she has been my sidekick, you know, for everything. And people ask my wife, you know, are you a musician? And she goes, no, uh, but she said, I, I accompany. And uh, they say, well, what do you mean? She says, I accompany my husband every place he goes, and I applaud everything he does. <laughs> what else can you ask, right? And uh, we had two great kids, and both of them were great musicians. They just chose not to go into music, but uh, both were great uh, individuals and teachers. And my son is, a, is an elementary uh, principal now, but a teacher. But they were both excellent musicians as well. And it was fun watching them and being a part of their musical lives when they were in junior high and high school. I didn't do any judging 
or any at weekend activities when they were in high school and doing their music things because I just wanted to go and be a nervous dad every time they played or they did athletics. And so I just stopped doing all that. And I, I wrote their schedules on our calendar first, and we did their activities. I knew that when they were gone from home that I would have lots of opportunity to do that again. But while they were in school, I wanted to be part of what what they were. And so that was uh, – and both those, both of our kids acknowledged that and appreciated that. After they were graduated from college and on their own, they both admitted to us how much they appreciated the time we spent with them in their activities and being involved with their activities when they were going through, you know, all their growing up years. I witnessed it. I can attest to that. Yeah, <laughs> and I think that's again that's a spinoff that Nancy and I tried to, you know, emulate Ray and Molly in our family and. And having the time that we wanted to have with our kids, I mean, even just, uh, you know, one of the things I think that I enjoyed being a, a high school director was that I got to have my kids in the band and uh, had, you know, both of my boys for four years. I had my daughter, Laura, for her freshman year in Morris, and then she came over here as a senior. But uh, the one thing that was uh, challenging about that that was there were no secrets at home about what went on in rehearsal uh, and it was always talked about at dinner but uh, it was a it was really a, a joy to have have those kids you know have my own kids for four years and in, in the band one funny story about my daughter when she was in junior high she had a very uh, let me just say a weather weak director who didn't really want to work very hard so Heather would come home and say, uh, Dad, uh, Mr. So-and-so wants you to come and, and do rehearsal tomorrow. And so, okay, so I'd go and do rehearsal. And I, I'd make them work. You know, I'd, I'd get in, I'd make them work, you know, and you know, I'd get it sometimes intense with whatever. And Okay, so they got better. I'd go home, and so maybe a week later, you know, Heather would say, hey, Mr. So-and-so wants you to come in and do the rehearsal. And I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll be in tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. And as she's walking out the door, she says, turns around, looks at me, says, now, Dad, just remember, I have to live with these people. <laughs> <laughs> I knew what she meant. <laughs> great. Well, thank you very much, Mike, and absolutely congratulations on a great career of years. Yes, yes. And uh, congratulations yeah, on your retirement there. And, and really. Professor Kramer, thanks for, for sitting with us. Thank today. you, gentlemen. Yeah, I some, enjoyed it. Something that I really should say uh, and to, to our, our host here, is uh, to Don, congratulations to you uh, on being named number five here at uh, JT. And uh, I said this earlier uh, this morning too, but I, I really feel better now about leaving this, knowing that I'm leaving it in not only capable hands, but caring hands, because I know how much you care about this place. And I know the best years are ahead for the JT band with Don Stinson. Thank you very much. I don't know if there's a word for excited and petrified at the same time. Oh, I saw that on your face when he when Steve when Steve was talking about the traditions of the school. I saw that on your face. At least the petrified part. Excitified. Excitified. Yeah. No, you'll be great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.